Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Martin Luther said this, It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day. John Calvin, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. William Tyndale, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. English poet named Samuel Taylor Coleridge, it is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. Bible commentator F.F. Bruce, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study this book. Be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You have been warned. (laughs) All of these people are talking about the book of Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament and For um, these reasons and others, I am calling this this morning the greatest letter ever written, and that's the title of a new sermon series that we are beginning this morning on the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, open them to that book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. This is a book that I have longed to study and to preach on. There is so much complexity of material here. It's such a weighty book that I've put it off, but after 10 years in the pastorate, I figure um, better late than never, so let's get started going through the book of Romans. God willing, we're going to work our way through all 16 chapters of this book, passage by passage. Um, You know, this really is a book where pretty much every single verse would warrant its own sermon. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to do it that way. We're going to take broader swaths of passages, so we might not get to deal deal with every detail, but we'll certainly get a good overview of the meaning of this book, the book of Romans. Let me give you a little bit of background information about this letter. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, the same Paul that wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, etc. Paul wrote this book we believe probably 57 to 59 B.C. This would have been about 10 years before Paul's death at the end of his third missionary journey, near the end of it. At that time, he was in a city called Corinth. So we believe while in Corinth, Paul wrote this book. Uh, The historical events surrounding that would be Acts, like chapter 18, 19, while Paul was in Corinth. Uh, The purpose for writing this book um, is really twofold. One is to give uh, an overview of the gospel, but another reason why Paul wrote this is because he had certain cities that he wanted to visit near the end of his ministry. He had some money that he had collected from other churches. He wanted to deliver it to the poor in Jerusalem. So from Corinth, he was heading to Jerusalem. Eventually, he wanted to wind up in Spain because Paul had this heart for taking the gospel to all the world. But in between his visit in Jerusalem and Spain, he intended to stop in Rome. 
and to visit the Christians there in that city. So that's his purpose, and through this what we get is an overview of the gospel, I think the richest, most um, thorough overview of the gospel. Not every detail of the gospel is in the book of Romans. There's not a lot of eschatology here. There's some, but not a lot. And so um, uh, not everything is here, but there is enough to qualify this book as a very thorough overview of the gospel. The last thing is the audience uh, goes without speaking to Christians in Rome. Verse 7, you'll see in a moment, Paul says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, what's a little unusual about this book is that Paul is writing to Christians in Rome who he did not know. Most of the time when Paul is writing his letters, he's writing back to churches that he has already planted. And so he knows a lot of people in Colossae, for instance, or in Philippi. But that's not the case here. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. So he's writing to people who he doesn't know and who do not know him. We actually don't know who uh, planted the church in Rome. Uh, We think probably in uh, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, we have uh, people from a number of different nations coming. They hear the gospel. They get saved. And it's mentioned that there are some Christians from Rome there at Pentecost. And we think probably some of them went back and planted this church. But since Paul is not known by these Christians in Rome, he takes a little extra space to establish his credentials and introduce himself to the church in Rome. And so that's why we have this fairly lengthy introduction, the first seven verses of chapter 1. That's longer than you'll find in other epistles written by Paul. And uh, that's what we're going to cover here this morning, just these first seven verses in Romans chapter 1. And what really strikes me about these first seven verses is the way that Paul has a very clear sense of his purpose. He seems to know who he is and what he's been called to do. And he has this total singular devotion to one thing, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he understands that that's what he's been set apart to do, and he wants to give his entire life to this. And there's just something to me that is so inspiring about that. I read that and I think that's the way I want to be. I want to have a singular devotion to the gospel. I don't want to be torn in a variety of different directions. I don't want a divided heart. I want a heart that is given over totally and completely to serving Christ. And Paul seems to have this in the way he is writing. And I would suggest that that's something that all of us to some degree want We want to know what is our purpose. We want to know what God is planning to do with us. Um, Henry David Thoreau, the great writer, said, it's not enough to be industrious, so are the ants. The question is, what are you industrious about? I mean, all of you are probably hard workers. You're busy. You're doing things. You have goals. But what are you busy about? What are you working for? What is your purpose read this story in this book uh, about a guy named Oz Guinness who's telling a story of, uh, of somebody, a very wealthy person. And the wealthy person wrote this. He said, as you know, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've made a lot of money, far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I can ever spend, far more than my family needs. But there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me, to find my own sense 
of purpose and fulfillment. I'd give anything to discover that. Have you discovered that in your life? Do you know what your purpose is? Do you know why you're here? That's what Paul talks about in these first seven verses. So if you have your Bibles open to that, let's stand and let me read Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we look to you to open our eyes to discover wonderful things in the book of Romans. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's just go through this. Notice, first of all, as Paul identifies himself in the very first verse, we already get some clarity about how Paul regards himself. He considers himself, he uses two words to describe himself. First of all, he is a servant of Christ Jesus. So Paul is describing himself here in humble terms. He calls himself a servant. That can also be translated slave. If any of us is a slave in any situation, that's generally not something that we want to bring out about us. But here Paul mentions it first. It's the first thing he says about himself. I'm a slave. I'm a servant to Jesus Christ. So Paul sees himself uh, in humble terms, it seems to me. What that tells me is that Paul's not into this to kind of push his own agenda. He doesn't have some kind of political purpose. All he wants to do is submit his heart, mind, and thoughts to Jesus. He's a servant. But at the same time, he says, he's called to be an apostle. So even though Paul humbly declares himself a slave, he also knows he's an apostle. He's been set apart for a very specific purpose by Jesus. Jesus has chosen him to be one who with authority would take the gospel to all nations. And so there's just an interesting balance, I think, between those two descriptions. I'm a servant, I'm a slave, attitude of humility, but I'm apostle, I'm an apostle, so what I say is authoritative. And so we can see here that Paul, again, is not pushing some personal agenda, he's being humble about it, but he also knows he's an apostle, and we don't have the luxury of just excusing this or pushing it aside as if it doesn't apply to us. Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, you can read that. That's when Jesus met him, saved him, and set him apart for this task. But notice what Paul says here. The thing that he set apart for is the gospel. You see that? Set apart for the gospel. 
Paul is industrious for the gospel. Paul is devoted to the gospel. And we see this in Acts chapter 20. I, I, I love this. Um, this, if I had to adopt a, a personal mission statement, I guess, that this is what I, I think would, would, uh, would claim. Paul says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's purpose, just summed up right there. So the question that I want to answer this morning is, is this, what is the big deal about the gospel? Why does Paul find in the gospel something that is worthy to devote his life to? Why did he see himself as being set apart for this one total purpose of giving himself to the gospel? What is it about the gospel that was so important to him? And by way of application, what is it about the gospel that should call you to do the same kind of thing in setting your life apart for the gospel, devoting yourself to the gospel? There's three things. Paul's set apart for the gospel because of three things about it. And the first thing is this. It is an enduring gospel. Okay, there's an enduring source here. Still in verse 1, Paul set apart for the gospel of God. See that? It's not the gospel of Paul. It's not the gospel of Peter. It's the gospel of God. Paul's not making this up. This didn't come from Paul's mind. This came from God. The gospel didn't start right here when Paul began to preach. The gospel started in the heart and mind of God from eternity past. This is a gospel that doesn't belong to the church. It's been delegated to us in the sense that we're called to protect it, but the church didn't make it up. God did. God devised this. This is God's gospel. And because of that, it's a gospel that we should not feel free to reshape or redirect, or to cut up into pieces, or to mold for our own personal interests. It's God's gospel. An enduring source comes from Him. But it also is a gospel that endures over time. If you move to verse second, uh, verse 2, he says, This gospel of God, which He, God, promised beforehand through His prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. So again, Paul's making the point. This is a gospel that started before me. And in fact, it was promised centuries ago, beforehand, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, Paul is referring to Old Testament Scriptures here. The New Testament isn't finished yet. And so we get a nice reminder here that, you know, if, you're, if you think, you know, the, the New Testament's about the gospel of God and grace, and the Old Testament is all about anger and wrath. That's not what the Bible says. What Paul is saying is that the gospel is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about the gospel just as much as the New Testament is about the gospel. We get more details and clarity in the new, but it's still there in the old. The Old Testament, the whole Bible from start to finish is about the gospel. And we can see this as we look at some various passages, some of these you're familiar with, I'm sure, Isaiah 53. Here's one of the prophets that Paul mentions. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was written 700 years before Paul. 
but it's talking about the gospel. That's talking about Jesus, the one who is going to come and take our sins upon himself. How about Deuteronomy chapter 18? This is um, God speaking to Moses, and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Excuse me, this is, this is Moses speaking. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. If you look in Acts chapter 3, you'll see that this also is referring to Jesus, the coming prophet, the perfect prophet who would come one day. That was written about 1,400 years before Paul. And we go even farther back into time. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, here's God speaking to the serpent after the serpent had tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is understood to be the very first promise of the gospel. All the way back in Genesis 3, the descendant of the woman, which we understand to be Jesus, is going to bruise the head of Satan. He's going to crush and overcome Satan, even as his heel is bruised, as he suffers in the process that is going to the cross to die for sins. But, I mean, we don't even know how many centuries ago this announcement happened from God to the serpent, but that's the gospel. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? The gospel is enduring. The, the, the gospel's not a fad. It's not a trend. It's not a flash in the pan thing. It's not something here today and gone tomorrow. The gospel is something that's been here for centuries, and it's going to be here for centuries if Jesus doesn't return first, because it is an enduring gospel. It stood the test of time. And the reason this is important to know is because we live in a culture that always seems to Rejoice and celebrate what's new. You know, we are a people, aren't we, that just go after trends and fads and whatever happens to be popular and whatever the you know, commercials that we see happen to be celebrating. We long for fads and trends, and we find ourselves sometimes thinking that if it's new, it must be good, and if it's old, it must be out of date and not worth my time. C.S. Lewis coined a phrase to describe this. He calls it chronological snobbery. The belief that the new is superior to the old. There's a lot of chronological snobs in our culture. Just always discarding the old and embracing whatever is new simply because it's new. G.K. Chesterton's another British Christian. Somebody said to him once, Chesterton, your views are out of line with the 20th century, to which he responded, I think the 20th century is out of line with reality. Just because it's the 20th century, just because we're in the 21st century, doesn't mean that the things that we hear are in line with the gospel or in line with the truth. The gospel is something that's enduring. It goes back centuries before and my challenge to you is this, whatever it is that you're finding your purpose in, whatever it is that you're devoting yourself to in your life, whatever it is in which you find your identity, is it enduring? Is it going to last? Or are you clinging to a fad and a trend that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow?
Are you building your life on bell-bottom jeans? You know, something that people will look back and laugh at one day because it's so out of style. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not go out of style. It never will. It never has because it's enduring. Second thing. Here's the second reason why Paul sees himself as devoted to the gospel. It's worthy to him to set himself apart for the gospel. It's because the gospel is miraculous. There's something miraculous about the gospel. Um, You're going to notice something here as we continue in verse 3, that the gospel is not primarily a bunch of rules. At the heart of the gospel, at the center of the gospel, is not rules, not rituals, not religion, but a person. At the center of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is a person. You see that in verse 3? Paul says, set apart for the gospel of God. That's in verse 1. We just talked about verse 2. Verse 3 says, the gospel of God is concerning His Son. Concerning his son, that son is Jesus Christ. John Calvin said, one step away from Jesus and you withdraw yourself from the gospel. This is what the gospel is about. It's not that Christianity doesn't involve rules and rituals and religion. It's just that those things aren't at the heart of Christianity. So many people misunderstand that. They think, if I want to become a Christian, it's just that I've got to start doing these rituals, and that's all they see. No, there's a person, a living person at the heart of Christianity at the heart of the gospel. And so Paul goes on to describe this and he gives us two very important details about Jesus in verses 3 and 4. First of all, we see something about Jesus' humanity. In verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was descended from David. There's a promise in 2 Samuel 7, and which was repeated in Jeremiah 23, our confession verse, where God makes a promise that David's throne, that his kingship would be established forever, that his throne would go on forever, a promise to David. Well, we know that David died, right? David's, David's dead, so how can his throne continue If he's dead, well, the way it's going to continue is if there's a descendant of David, which is what verse 3 says. And that descendant is Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of David. Sometimes he's called in the New Testament the son of David. And if Jesus is the son of David, a man, that would mean that Jesus is a man. A son of a man is also a man. And Paul fleshes that out at the end of verse 3. He was descended from David according to the flesh. That just means by natural descent, that he was born of a woman, like our assurance passage said from Galatians, that Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was a real man, a man with bones and flesh who got hungry, who got tired, who got sad, who liked to be with friends. Jesus embraced humanity to its full. And so this is what Paul is telling us here about Jesus. But then he goes on to describe Jesus' divinity, and that's in verse 4. Verse 3 describes his humanity. And verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be 
the son of God. Again, if you're a son of a man, you're a man. If you're the son of God, you're God. (laughs) What we're being presented with here is a Savior, a Messiah, who is both human and divine. Jesus is a man, and I'm tempted to say was, to refer to his earthly ministry, but he's still alive, everybody. He is a man and a God in one person. Now, notice here in verse 4 that he says that um, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Now, that has caused some trouble for some people. Why does this say that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God? Because it seems to suggest that maybe he wasn't the Son of God before. You know, is it the case that Jesus was only a man and not God during his earthly ministry, but then when he obeyed God's law and um, fulfilled God's calling upon him, then he earned the right to be the Son of God? That's the way some people will interpret this, as if he wasn't the Son of God eternally. But that's a bad interpretation, because if you look at verse 4 again, notice there's a very important phrase here. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. That that's an important phrase. I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus came into the world as the Son of God in weakness, born in a manger, living in this fallen world, dealing with the wickedness and grief of this world, certainly going all the way to a cross, being rejected by his friends, unjustly tried, nailed to a a tree. that's, That's an embrace of weakness. Jesus came into this world in weakness, but was declared to be the Son of God in power. Why? What happened? Go on in verse 4. Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, and when that resurrection happened, the Father said, I declare Him to be the Son of God now in power, not just the Son of God in weakness, because He has overcome the powers of death, and now He reigns from the throne room of heaven over all the universe. That is power, and that's the power that Jesus has through His resurrection. But here's where we see the the miracle. We're talking here about a, a man, a real man, who also happens to be God, who submitted himself to the powers of death and was risen from the dead miraculously. Not as a ghost, not just in a spirit, not just in the hearts and minds of the disciples, but really and truly in history was there an occasion when a man was dead and came alive again? It's a miracle. It's the greatest miracle in all the world, in all of history, is at the center of the gospel. A man who was dead and is now alive. Friends, if you're looking for a sense of purpose, you're looking for someone to give yourself to, you're looking for something to direct you and and guide you, You're looking for something you can be set apart for. What could be better than this man who is descended from a great and mighty king through promises that endured over the centuries, who is also the God of the universe, who submitted himself to death and now is resurrected from the dead? Is there anyone better than that to devote yourself to? 
Why do you need to look any further than Jesus for something or someone on which to build your life? What a miracle this is that Paul is describing for us. Friends, when you're called to be a Christian, when I call, when Brian calls, when you hear the call to be a Christian, I want to be very clear about what that means. We're not calling you to just join a club, a social club. That's not what this is all about. We're not calling you to to have a special feeling down in your bosom somewhere, in your heart that you've just never had before. We're not calling for feelings. We're, We're not calling you to start getting religious. We're not calling you to vote Republican. That's not what it is to be a Christian. I'll start being conservative in my politics. That's not the call to Christianity. The call to Christianity is personal faith in a person named Jesus who miraculously was raised from the dead. And to have relationship with him, to know him and walk with him and read his word to get to know him better, to pray to him and to follow him and to submit your life to him. That's what we're calling you to. It's something much deeper than just these superficial things that I've mentioned. And, you know, it could be that there are people here today who have always thought you're a Christian because you thought it was one of those things. You thought being a Christian is just just joining a church. Being a Christian is just saying, I'm going to stop. I'm going to try a little harder not to do the wrong thing anymore. I'm not going to watch as much TV. I'm going to start cutting down my alcohol intake. That, and therefore, I'm a Christian. It, I mean, it might involve those things, but that's not the heart of it. That's not the center of it. At the center is a person raised from the dead, and because he's raised from the dead, he lives, and because he lives, you can know him and walk with him and increase in your acquaintance with him. So for Paul, this is, a, this is what he sees. This is why he's set apart, because he wants to serve this miraculous gospel. One last thing I think that Paul is going to show us here about what's so worthy about the gospel is that it's a global gospel. It's a global gospel. Verse 5, notice the purpose of Paul's apostleship. He says, it's through him we have received grace and apostleship. And then he says, to bring about the obedience of of faith. Now, there's another phrase that has caused some people to be a little puzzled. What does that mean, the obedience of faith? Some say it really ought to be translated the obedience to the faith, as if it's obedience to Christianity as the faith. But that's not really what it says. Some people will say, well, you know, that the obedience kind of replaces the faith or trumps faith, and so what's more important than faith is, is obedience. But I don't think that's a good translation either. I think maybe the best way to see this is that this is an obedience that springs from faith. It's an obedience that finds its root in faith, just like it says in James, right? Faith without works is dead. That's all Paul is saying here, that if you are a Christian, it's not just the free ticket to heaven one day when you die and then from now until the day you die, you don't think about Jesus at all. 
The gospel offers salvation freely. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. You can't be good enough to earn God's approval. You can't. Once you receive the gospel and acknowledge that it's free and all your sins are pardoned because of what Jesus did in shedding his blood on the cross, your heart is filled with gratitude. And what you want to do now is obey that Jesus. And that's why Paul calls him Jesus Christ, our Lord, at the end of verse 4. He is Lord. He's not just a Savior waiting for you to make him Lord. He is Lord. He's Lord now, and he's always been Lord and always be Lord. You can't have Jesus as your Savior without also having him as your Lord. That's part of what it is to be a Christian. The obedience of faith, obedience that springs from faith. But notice, who is it that Paul has in mind who will become obedient to the faith? It's for the sake of his name, at the end of verse 5, among all the nations. Do you see, there's there's this global scope in Paul's mind. This is another reason why Paul sees this is something worth devoting my life to. This is not just for Jews. It's not just for men. It's for everybody in the entire world, in every nation throughout the world. The gospel is not an American thing. The gospel is not even a Western thing. You know, some people say, well, you know, in our Western culture, we're mostly Christian, and so Christianity works for Westerners, but for Easterners, well, they have a whole other different religion, and so the religions that they follow are good for them, but the religion that we follow in the West is good for us. What Paul says is that this is a gospel that is for all the nations, without exception, every culture, every nation, because that's what Jesus died to save, right? Revelation 5.9, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, There's a book written by Richard Bauckham called Bible and Mission, and he points out this very interesting statistic about the difference between Christianity and other religions. Um, He's a professor uh, in Australia or Scotland, I think, Richard Bauckham, and um, he, he notes this. He says, Muslims, adherents to Islam, live, about 90% of them live in just one part of the world. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India. So these different religions, they're concentrated in certain parts of the world. But, but not really spreading in large measure throughout other parts of the world. But Christianity, on the other hand, 25% of Christians live in Europe, 25% live in Central and South America, 22% live in Africa, 15% live in Asia, and that number is growing rapidly, and about 12% live in North America. Isn't that interesting? The smallest percentage is in our continent. But do you see how Christians, they're spread out all over the world. Why? Because the gospel is for all the nations. It's not just for Americans. It's for everybody. And so Bauckham goes on and he says about this, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that must say something. 
That must say something about this faith. What does it say? It's worthy to give your life to. It's worthy to consider it the thing for which you're set apart. It's worthy of your singular devotion. As I invite the musicians forward, I just want to close by pressing this application. What is your sense of purpose? What what are you industrious about? What have you given yourself to in this life? Is it just, I just want to be comfortable? Is that it? I, I just want to be rich. I just want to be famous. I just want to be powerful. What are you giving yourself to? Helen Keller said this, happiness is not found in self-gratification, but in fidelity to a worthy purpose. The gospel is a worthy purpose for you, friends, because it is an enduring gospel throughout the ages. It is a worthy purpose because at the heart of it is the miraculous resurrection from the dead of a real living person. And it is worthy because it entails a global cause as we see people from every tribe, language, and tongue come to faith. Will you give yourself to this purpose? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you because you reveal yourself through your word to us. Father, we acknowledge our hearts are often slow to follow you, and I pray, Father, as we go through Romans, that you would increase in us a passion for the central thing about our existence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the taking of this message to all the nations. Equip us for that. Bless this sermon series, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.